want to share with you a message today that I have titled, A Mercy That Multiplies. I heard about an experienced CEO who was sharing some of his early career experiences with a young novice, a young executive, someone who was beginning to climb that corporate ladder. And he was sharing about how when he began in his career, he was really down on his luck. He was married at the time, but he was down to his last nickel. And he took that nickel, he shared with this young executive, and he invested that nickel in a single apple. And he polished that apple up. And then he sold the apple for 10 cents. Well, the next day, he used the 10 cents, and he bought two apples. He polished those apples up, and he gave and essentially earned 20 cents off of those two apples. Well, the young executive thought, well, hey, I'm starting to get an idea of what's going on here. So he spoke up to the executive. So I see what you're saying. He said, over time, through wise investment, you continued to build until you built this great business that I'm now a part of here. The executive said, well, not quite. You see, when I got to about 40 cents, my father-in-law passed away and left us an estate of $2 million. And that's how we built this great successful business that you see here now. Well, those of us who know Christ have attained a great fortune. And contrary to what the world may think, it's not a fortune that we have been able to earn for ourselves one deed at a time. You see, the world tends to get this mentality that through good deeds, you're going to earn favor with God. But we who are Christians know that ultimately, anything we have received is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. He has left to us a great inheritance through Christ, our Savior. Our great God has been merciful to us. And as we rounded our examination of one-way love out last week, we saw that Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, to be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And that word merciful is a word which really just means to, to have pity on someone, to be full of compassion. And the great inheritance that we find in Christ is ours because God has done this very thing. God has had compassion on those who were not worthy of what he has granted to us. And when we tend to talk about mercy in the, in the context of church, what we talk about is God not giving us what we deserved. Because all of us were at enmity with God. All of us deserved his wrath. All of us had shown ourselves to be in very opposition to him, his enemies. And yet God, through a great display of mercy, has shown to us that he is extending to us an opportunity to be reunited with him, to be restored in relationship to him. And so... God could have legitimately wiped us off of the map at any given moment. And he could be righteous in his judgment for doing so. But God has not done that. Instead, he has acted in mercy. He has withheld his judgment. And he has extended his grace. For our God is a merciful God. And every Christian who has come to experience the blessings of God's compassion toward us 
as we have not been given the judgment that we deserve, but the free gift of a Savior who stands in our place and bears our judgment and extends to us his death-conquering life by faith, ought to be showing this same sort of mercy toward others. Because, you see, Christians have found a great mercy. Mercy has come to occupy our very hearts And that mercy ought to flow out of our hearts into our lives. That's what we're going to see Jesus describing for us here today. Because God doesn't want us to be mercy hogs. He doesn't want us just to take in all the mercy that we can and hold it to ourselves and hoard it up. He wants us to reflect his mercy in the way that we interact with others who are around us. And that's what we're going to see in Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 45 today. And as we look into this passage today... There's one main idea that I hope you will see as we dig in together, and that's this. God expects that those who receive his mercy will multiply that mercy into the lives of others. Let me say that again. God expects that those who receive his mercy will multiply that mercy into the lives of others. Now, we're in really the third lesson, the fourth message of of this examination of what we've called the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus calls these 12 men who are going to share life with him, investing in them so that he can prepare them to carry on the work of his church once he is ascended into heaven. And just after Jesus goes up to the mountain, just after he spends all night in prayer over these men and calls them to him, he steps down onto what Luke describes as a level place. That's why we call this the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is here on a level place. Could be on the side of the mountain. It could be the same sermon we read about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 through 7, uh, where, where we read about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, scholars are a little bit divided over this. Either way, Jesus preaches some truths that have some parallels between those two, and he preaches those from what Luke describes as a level place. And so we're in our fourth message through this topic of what I've described as Discipleship 101. Why would you call it Discipleship 101? Well, because ultimately this is Jesus teaching those whom he has called to invest his life in as kingdom reproducers after he has ascended into heaven. And these are his lessons for them. He is laying down the fundamentals of discipleship. We read Luke says that he spoke to his disciples. He turned his gaze toward them. And so when we read what we're going to be reading here today, it's a continuation of Luke providing for us Jesus' instructions, the ground level of the faith, the things that you need to understand if you are going to be a follower of his. And so that's where we step in today as we get to Luke chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 36. If you are able, and it is not an extra burden for you to do so, I'd ask that you would stand as we honor the reading of God's word together. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 36. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Herein ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, as we look into these verses today, as we look into this model for a mercy that multiplies here today, I want to share with you four ways to multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple. Four ways to multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple. The first is this, pardon and do not harden. Pardon and do not harden. As Jesus issues this call to every disciple to multiply God's mercy into the lives of others by commanding that we are to be merciful just as your Father is merciful, there in verse 36, he follows that command with some specific ways that we are to multiply that mercy into the lives of others in verses 37 and 38. Now, the first of these is a favorite go-to line for our society, okay? So I'm going to camp out here a little bit longer than I am in some other portions of the message because I want to bring a little clarity to what we find there in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. And that's where Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Or you've probably heard this like me a thousand times over from individuals who use that King James version of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. that says, judge not lest ye be judged, right? It's a favorite go-to phrase for our society. And I remember in the early times of my software engineering career, I was just getting interested, really, in the things of God. I'd grown up in a church, but for me, it was always kind of a routine, ritual, you know, plug in with the folks that you know, society sort of thing, right? And, and, and as I, as I got, graduated from college, got into my first career, uh, with a, as a software engineer, and I began to kind of think I needed to take a little ownership of my own faith. I started attending a very solid church down in the Cary area where I was living at the time. And there was a guy who went to that church. There were a couple of guys that went to that church who worked with me. But one of them I was in conversation with in the workplace one day, and he knew that I'd been coming to church there. And just in the conversation, he started talking about another one of our coworkers who claimed to be a Christian... But the fruit of her life was not giving evidence that she was a Christian. And I remember pulling out this card that I've heard so many others pull out myself. Because I was a little bit incredulous. I was a little bit astonished that he would be talking about the fruits of someone else's life. Engaging whether or not they were truly a follower of Christ. And so I said, judge not lest you be judged. Now ultimately... My motive at that time was not to be faithful to what Christ had commanded. My real concern at that time was, you know, if this guy's judging someone else's fruit in her life, he's probably going to be doing the same thing in my life. And I can tell you that my life at that time 
was a life that was lived as if Jeremy was the Lord of Jeremy's life. It was not a life that was lived as though Christ was the Lord of Jeremy's life. And so I threw up the wall. Judge not lest you be judged. Put this safety barrier around me so that nobody speaks into my life. Because that became a real concern for me. That this friend, this fellow Christian, at least I thought I was a Christian at the time, was going to speak words which would ultimately cause me to have to deal with the sin in my life. And individuals from all walks of life use this command of Jesus to imply that though some things are obviously wrong according to God's word, that we must not dare to speak about those things in the lives of another in a negative way. The assumption is that if we speak about another individual's wrongs, then we're judging them. And therefore, we're bringing judgment upon ourselves. Well, the question we need to ask is, is this assumption in our society, is this a right assumption? Does Jesus really want us to withhold any words that might address another individual standing before God, even when assessing and speaking might cause that individual to realize his or her need for Christ? Is that really what Jesus is after in these verses? Does Jesus really want us to ignore the sins of other people? Well, if we kind of zoom out a little bit outside of Luke chapter 6, and look even at the context of the verses that are here within Luke chapter 6, from a broader perspective, we see that that sort of mentality just simply doesn't jive with the way that God's word calls for us to live. Even today, we've already read how Jesus teaches us about how we can look at the fruit of an individual's life to get a sense of the treasure that is in an individual's heart. And we've read about how once we've taken the speck or we've taken the log out of our own eye, we can help our neighbor with the speck that is in his eye. Jesus doesn't say, don't care, don't be concerned, don't worry about the speck that's in your brother's eye. He says, take care of your own log first, and then you can move along and help your brother. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that the saints will judge the world in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he proclaims, we will judge the angels. There's a high calling of judgment coming for those who are believers in Christ is what Paul is saying here. And just before that in chapter 5, chapter five, Paul dealt with a pretty serious issue in the church that was in Corinth. Now, some of you have seen some churches that have some pretty rough issues going on. Well, I would say that most churches in our day and age wouldn't even compare with what was going on in the Corinthian church. You just read question after question, issue after issue that Paul was addressing. But in chapter 5, he brings up that there is someone who is gathered in their fellowship who is essentially shacking up with his stepmom, okay? And everybody knows about this. Paul talks about it so severe that there, that there is an immorality which not even the Gentiles would display to the world around them. And in the midst of that sort of immorality, in the midst of something that brings that sort of blemish to the church, Paul says that when you are gathered together and I with you there in spirit, I have determined to judge, it's the same word that we see here in Luke chapter 6. I have dis determined to judge this one. He says, to turn him over to Satan, that ultimately his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that's a pretty high judgment, is it not? I mean, it's, an, it's a church discipline sort of situation. There's an individual in the church whose life is so out of whack with what God has designed for individuals to be living that Paul says you should ultimately treat him like he is not a member of that church. 
But why? Is Paul just saying, well, this guy's not going to make it to heaven? No, he wants to instruct this individual. That's why he says, ultimately, so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so there is this sort of, even in the church, there's this sort of role that we are called to, where we are to examine one another, we are to encourage one another. But all of that, my friends, all of that must be done under this common goal of sharing the heart of God, of leading others to walk with him. Even as Paul sent someone away from the church, it was with the mentality that I want to win this one to Jesus. And that's why he calls for this level of judgment there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, Paul wasn't writing this man off to hell. He wanted this man to realize that he was a sinner in need of a savior. Paul wanted this man to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So even in his judgment, Paul was exercising mercy. A thing we've talked about that we have received from the Lord. And this helps us to see that in Luke chapter 6 verse 37, Jesus is not telling us not to evaluate other believers. He's not telling us not to identify areas uh, where they might grow, where they might produce more fruit for the Lord. He's not telling us to turn a blind eye while our brother or sister in Christ walks into a pit of destruction. What Paul is ultimately saying is that that sort of refusing to judge is not going to be an act of mercy. We judge with a mentality of mercy. It would not be proper to let an individual walk into that pit and, and say that we are being merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. So what is Jesus commanding us not to do then? The key word, or really the key phrases are found in what follows this here in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, because Jesus gives greater, greater clarity in the phrases that follow when he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Because in the verses which follow, he also says, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will not be pardoned. What is the judgment that is wrong? It's the judgment that condemns. It's the judgment that refuses to pardon. It's the judgment that hardens the heart against your fellow man and says, you are not worthy of God's grace like I am. You are inescapably bound for hell. You ever heard people talking like that to their neighbors? I think sometimes we have that mentality whether we want to verbalize it or not. We see individuals who come from a different walk of life. We see individuals who come from countries that that have ultimately different religions than our own. They've got different cultural traditions. We look at them and we think, oh, you're hopelessly bound for hell. And that is a wrong-headed motive. That is a wrong-headed thought according to what Jesus is describing for us here. This is the same sort of judgment that Jesus has dealt with already with the Pharisees as we've gotten into the early chapters of Luke. Because it was those Pharisees who were constantly looking for individuals that they might judge, individuals that they might establish themselves on a higher plane than. So when Jesus went to the house of Matthew, the tax collector who had come to him by faith, in spite of his nasty, wretched, wicked past, Jesus goes and shares a meal with Matthew. Jesus has other tax collectors and sinners who are gathered there with him around the table. And those Pharisees, they say, he's dining with the tax collectors and sinners. As though I would never touch that sort of person. I would never get close to someone who's that sinful. 
And the Pharisees had a heart that was hardened against the sinners of this world. They were not multiplying God's mercy. That's why Jesus had so much friction and collision with them here on earth. So in this Godward direction, Jesus shows us that those who condemn others are not multiplying the mercy that they have received. And this is likely a testimony that they're still under God's judgment. They're still under condemnation. They have not received a merciful pardon. How can you receive the free gift of grace, which forever frees you from your prior wrongs toward God, and then go and treat others as though they are incapable of earning that same gift that you have received freely? How can you do that? If that's your mentality, then you're depending on yourself. You're living with this judgmental sort of attitude that says, I am better than you. I live a more holy life than you. I deserve God more than you. And anyone who has this sort of attitude obviously misses the whole point when it comes to Jesus. Because none of us is good before God. None of us is worthy of the gift that we have received. None of us is righteous in our own deeds. It's all by God's grace. It's all by His gift. It's all by His acting to move heaven and earth so that we could be restored to Him. And Jesus has paid that price. Jesus was tortured and shamed and executed. And Jesus is our only hope. There is no other way. If you are clinging to hope in anything else that you can produce on your own, then my friends, you are living in a false hope but praise God because Jesus welcomes you no matter what history you have no matter what kind of background you come from and if you know the mercy of our great God through Christ then you ought to be multiplying that mercy you ought not be hardening your hearts against others you ought to be pardoning them a famous British general once spoke to the preacher and evangelist John Wesley, and he said to Wesley, I never forgive, and I never forget. Wesley replied, then, sir, I hope you never sin. There's a general principle in how we interact with our fellow man that comes out of this passage as well, where Jesus is talking about how if we do not condemn others if we do not judge others then they will not do the same sort of thing to us it's a general principle for how life typically works generally if we pardon others generally generally if we're generous toward others they will return the same sort of thing back to us now we read and we talked extensively in that one way love series of, of messages about how ultimately that's not why we do these things, right? We don't do these things with the motive that we're going to get things in return. But often, often that will happen. Often individuals will return mercy for our mercy. Often the fact that we would be merciful to others produces for us a platform, an opportunity, an open door to share the good news of the gospel. I heard about a, a boy who had a fight with another boy at school and he lost. And while his mother was bathing his black eye, he told her about how the fight was entirely the other boy's fault. His mother, in wisdom, said nothing about this proposal, at least. But after she dressed his eyes, she took him over to the back door of their home. And nearby, there were several hills that produced a really excellent echo 
when you would yell something out toward those hills. So she told the boy to yell out toward those hills and to call those hills every potential name that he could call them. And as he called those names out the window, those names came echoing back to him in return. And then she told the little boy, now, now yell out, God bless you. And as he did that, what do you think came back? God bless you. So often, that's really the way things go in our world. As a general principle, our efforts to be merciful to others will produce that same sort of result. If we are kind and merciful toward others, if we pardon them and we do not harden our hearts against them, then they will generally do the same thing toward us. And that, my friends, often becomes the open door to share the hope of the author of mercy in our own lives. If our standard of measure is the mercy that God has shown toward us, and if we're using that to ensure that we are generous generous toward our fellow man, then we should expect that forgiveness and generosity will come back our way. That's why Jesus says, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he gives this analogy of how grain was sold in the grain market. You can think of how you measure things in your measuring cup, right? Some things you need to tap down a little bit, right? You need to shake it up a little bit so it'll settle down. Many of you have gotten the same boxes of cereal that I have. It looks like they've only got like a quarter of the cereal in there, right? Because everything's settled down over time, right? Well, if you were generous and you were measuring grain out in the market, what would you do? You would shake it down. You would pour it over into the lap of an individual. You'd be sure that it was full. It was overflowing. That's an act of generosity. And that's what Jesus draws out an analogy to here in these verses. And so I ask you, what is your standard of measure for how you interact with others? God has been most generous in extending his pardon toward us through Christ. For those of you who claim to know Christ, is that a mercy that multiplies in your life? Is there any prejudice in you that that sees the sinful deeds of someone else and says, there's no way that he'll ever become a Christian? Or maybe you've been wronged and you, you refuse to pardon, you refuse to forgive someone who's wronged you. Does that jive with what you have found in Christ as you have wronged him? Multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple and pardon and do not harden. The second way to multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple is this. Train before you take the reins. Train before you take the reins. As Jesus continues on, he speaks a parable which we've seen before is just this relatable sort of story that communicates a divine truth, a heavenly sort of truth. And in this parable is a very short one. Jesus simply says, a blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Well, that makes sense to us, right? We talk about this all the time, the blind leading the blind, right? Someone who can't figure out where he's going shouldn't take the hand of someone else who doesn't know where he's going. One won't be able to guide the other around the perils of the place where they are traveling to. And there's really no benefit beyond what we would experience if we had gone alone. If we don't know where we're going and somebody else who doesn't know where they're going takes us to guide us along, it's not giving us any benefit, right? Well, in the Bible, blindness often has this analogy with spiritual things. The individual who is blind essentially is one who cannot see the things of God, cannot perceive what God is doing. And Jesus is speaking primarily here to his 12 disciples. Remember we talked about those who he has called to spend life with him in preparation for carrying on his work once he ascends to heaven. 
They must understand the things of God themselves. They must have spiritual visibility. They must be able to see what God is teaching before they can become the leaders that he is calling them to be and preparing them to be in leading others. Otherwise, they'll lead others into peril. Otherwise, they will both fall into the pit, is what Jesus is teaching here. And this begs an important question for all of us. Who is guiding you through the perils of life? Really, who's guiding you around those potential pitfalls? Who's helping you and warning you and saying, this is the right way to go? When you've got a big decision to make, when you're thinking down the road about about what direction you want to go, who is it that you turn to for advice? Who do you look to as an example? Are you leaning on individuals who are seasoned in their walk with the one who gives spiritual sight to the blind so that they can direct you and model for you a life that avoids the destructive dangers? In our day and age, I think we are far too prone to look to those who have no sight to lead us in the ways that we ought to go. We look to those who've made it big on the stage and the screen as though the words that they speak and the lives that they live are worthy of our pursuit. We look at those who live in bigger houses and drive nicer cars than we do and have fancier things than us, and we say, well, maybe if I do the things that they do, I can have those same nice things. But if you follow the guidance of those who are blind, they will lead you straight into the pit, is what Jesus is saying here. And that's a stern warning for us in how we ought to be seeking out counselors, how we ought to be seeking out others in the body of Christ to help us. Those who are seasoned, those who have been walking with Christ, those who have walked out of these perils in the past, stand here ready to support you as brothers and sisters. We are all one family, and we want to see this family succeed. So if there are struggles in your life, find a brother or sister to walk with you through those. Then Jesus relates this directly to discipleship by saying, a pupil is not above his teacher remember jesus is speaking those disciples whom he has called they've committed themselves to be learning from him a disciple is really just a learner they've committed themselves to be learning from the master teacher for a certain amount of time and they know that they're not better than he is jesus also wants them to know that they have some training to do before they'll be ready to lead others and so he says everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher And here in the midst of showing his disciples how they're to be multiplying God's mercy, Jesus shows them that they'll be ready to do this when they've been fully trained. Because that's when they'll be like their teacher. And Jesus, my friends, is the ultimate teacher of every disciple. What is our teacher like? Well, he's a multiplier of mercy, is he not? Do you want to know how to judge others? Just look to the example of Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we have some of the most famous words in all of Christianity. That's where Jesus says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus follows up these words of God's love and how that love was shown through His only Son with these words of how He, Jesus, our greatest teacher, carries out His work of judgment. In verse 17... Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see, Jesus came to save. Jesus didn't come to condemn individuals to hell. You were already headed there. You and I both were. 
That's why Jesus goes on in John chapter 3, verse 18 to say, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He came so that the world would be saved. If we are his disciples, if we have been under the instruction of our teacher, then this will be our heart. Not to tell people you're going to hell, but to tell people there is a chance of heaven. Would you cling to that by faith? This is the great gift that God has granted to us. If we're just telling individuals that they are going to hell, then we are wasting our time because we have changed nothing. They were headed there already. But our Savior has come to show us that though we are headed for the pit, He has come to change the outcome on our behalf. He has come to lead us to safety. And if we're going to lead individuals in a way that honors our Master, then we must want to see individuals who are headed for hell saved by Jesus because He has come for this very work. God has given us a second chance on judgment he has given us an opportunity to come to the light walking out of the darkness and friend i don't care who you are or what you've done there is an escape from the condemnation that you and i both deserve there is a rescue for the perils that you and i have both created in our own lives there is a savior who longs to save you there is a mercy that has been multiplied even to you And maybe you've been on the wrong end of a bunch of individuals who seem to be Christians, but who told you that you were going to hell. And I just want to tell you, that is not God's heart for you. His heart is for you to be one, for you to be restored. He has a heart that pursues you. He has a heart that yearns for you. He is longing that you would come to eternal life. And Jesus will be the final judge of every man. He will judge upon What you do with these very truths, what do you do with the gospel of his son? Those will be the foundations of the judgment that you face forevermore. How did you respond to God's rescue mission? Will you, by faith, take hold of the rope that God has extended to you through Christ so that he can rescue you from eternal peril? Or will you drown in your sins and your self-sufficiency and in your feelings of unworthiness? I just want to say, if someone's given you the impression that you are not worthy, that you are not a prize of heaven, then hear me on this. You've been hearing from someone who has not been trained in the way of the Master. For he loves the world with a love that goes to a bloody cross, with a love that empties out a sealed-up tomb. He loves the world with a love that is unlike any other you've ever experienced. He loves the world with a love that only he could provide through his sinless life as a substitute in our place just for the unjust and in our new vision for new vision that's what these banners you see up here are that we desire that through this fellowship christ would cause multitudes to be found formed fired filled and flowing what we're talking about here is ultimately this formed stage We want individuals to ultimately be flowing for God's glory. We want individuals to be taking what has been poured into them and multiplying it into the lives of others. But there is very much an intentionality to why we put these stages here together. 
You need to be investing in God's word. You need to have the character of Christ shaped into you. You need to have a family of believers who are investing in you and calling you to a higher standard, who are sharing the word with you, who are walking with you, who are forming you into the vessel that God wants you to be. Before you just go out and say, okay, let me multiply something that I don't totally understand. That's why we've got these things in the order that we have them in. Once we know the author of mercy, then we'll be ready to lead others to him. Then we'll be ready to multiply his mercy. Yes, it's an investment, but it's also a command from the God who saves us and who will pay rich dividends in his kingdom. So do you want to multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple? Then train before you take the reins. Devote yourself to the author of mercy so that you can lead others into that same mercy. That's the second way to multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple. The third is this. Reflect before you inspect. In verses 41 and 42, Jesus illustrates hypocrisy in a way that's really kind of funny if we think about it, right? I mean, the analogy is someone who looks at you or looks at their brother, whoever that might be, and looks in his eye and and sees this little speck in it, right? And he says, well, look at that little speck right there. Look at that little bit of a bad attitude you had as you greeted me today. Look at that little bad word you used just just a moment ago when you tripped and you fell. Look at that little Sunday that you, you missed because you slept in late after you worked long and hard the night before. And seeing that little speck, he takes or offers at least to take the speck out. Let me, let me help you with that little speck. But there's a problem. Because the one who's trying to help out here has a log in his own eye. I mean, it's a pretty funny sort of analogy, right? Can you imagine? Some, the word that's used here is a word that literally would, would describe the beam, the main beam in an individual's house that went right down the center of the house in Jesus' day. Can you imagine someone with like a 30-foot beam who's here with that sticking out of his eye, and he says, oh, let me help you with that little speck in your eye, right? He's looking through whatever good eye he's got left, and he's trying to figure out a way to help you with that. I don't know about you guys. I don't want somebody who's got a log in their eye helping me take the speck out of my eye. It just doesn't seem like a very wise sort of practice. This guy's proven that he's not a good wood inspector, right? I mean, he's got something here that he ought to be taking notice of. Why is he trying to address something in my life when this thing's sticking out of his own eye? And Jesus puts us all in the place of this guy who has the beam. He essentially tells us, take care of your own problems first. Reflect upon yourself before you inspect others. Take time to reflect on your own life before you spend time inspecting the life of someone else. Because our tendency... Our tendency is to go a little bit easy on ourselves and to be pretty hard on the judgment of others, is it not? We know how this goes. We say, I'm wise with money, but you're cheap, right? Or I'm concerned about her, but you're just plain nosy. Or we say, I'm just driving with the flow of traffic, but you're being reckless, man. If someone's late for an appointment, I think this person is rude. Don't they know that I have other things to do? But if I'm late for an appointment, I think, well, that person's just going to have to realize that I'm busy and I've got other things to do, right? If I'm in a hurry, I may ride the bumper of the person in front of me and, and say, step on it. I don't have all day. But if somebody else is riding my bumper, I say, back off, man. What's your hurry? Right? 
We tend to judge ourselves much less harshly than we judge others. We're quick to blame others. We're slow to blame ourselves. We're quick to identify the faults of others. But we're slow to identify our own. And yet God calls us to judge our own sins. He calls for us to be merciful to others. This requires that we take some time to reflect on our own life, our own standing, our own sin. And any person who comes to Christ has a number of logs that need to be removed from our own eyes. I think a lot of us could give testimony to that, right? There are things which blind us to the mercy we should be showing to others. And if you try to, try to like, get the speck out of someone else's eye while you've got that log there, right? You're going to be slapping them all over the face and poking them in the eye and everything before you're able to get that thing out, right? You're probably going to make a big mess of things. And so, friends, I just want to ask you, have you removed any known logs from your own eyes? Are there any things which you, you know that the Lord forbids, and yet you've just kind of been tolerating those things because it's an inconvenient sort of thing for you? You really don't want to deal with that. I mean, it's going to take some extra effort to get that log out of your eye. And so you've, you've been hesitant to deal with that. Maybe you're angry at someone, and you're tearing them down with your words to others. Maybe you're, you're engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage when you know that God has called for that to be an activity that is reserved to be shared between a man and a woman in this covenant bond with one another. Maybe, maybe you're neglecting to seek God first with your life. Maybe you've got your eye on someone else's possessions or someone else's wife or someone else's career path. And you've started lusting after the things that are not your own. Or maybe there's some other thing in your life right now that you're thinking, man, I hope he doesn't bring that up because I really don't want to deal with that right now. Are there any logs in our lives, my friends, that we are just not willing, not ready, not prepared to address? And we're thinking, oh, I really don't need the conviction of that in my life right now. Well, if you call Christ your Lord, and if you harbor the things which he forbids, then you are blinding yourself to spiritual realities. And you're in no place to bring a judgment that corrects a brother or sister in Christ. You're in no place to be a multiplier of mercy if you are blinded by these things. And many people have been burned by Christians who've judged them with these logs that were hanging out of their eyes. And Jesus has a word for an individual who does that sort of thing. He says, you hypocrite. It's a word that describes a, an actor in a play. It describes someone who wants to put on a mask and try to convince someone that they are something when they are in fact not. And Jesus has a command for hypocrites. He doesn't say, leave your brother to struggle with his speck all by himself. What does Jesus tell the hypocrite? He says, first take the log out of your eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother with the speck that is in his own eye. Jesus doesn't tell us to abandon our brother who is in need. He tells us to deal with things on the home front first. And then be prepared through the mercy that you've experienced in dealing with that trial, with that struggle. Then you'll be prepared to help your brother or your sister with the things that he or she is struggling with. We ultimately must enact judgment that is characterized 
by the mercy we have received. It is a merciful, going to give everything, going to go the extra mile, going to give of myself to help you to be restored to Christ, sort of judgment. And you know who's most prone to be merciful? It's the one who's received the greatest mercy. Do you know who's most likely to be compassionate to a brother or sister who's struggling with sin in his or her own life? It's the one who's undergone that same struggle and has come through victorious. So let the Lord help you deal with your own logs. And then, my friends, you'll be a champion of mercy as you help others with the specks in their own eyes. So reflect before you inspect. That's the third way to multiply God's mercy as Christ's disciple. Here's the final way. Show who you know by what you grow. In verses 43 to 45, Jesus makes it clear that the fruit of your life is evidence of the treasure that is in your heart. He says in verse 44, each tree is known by its fruit. No good tree, like a fig tree, produces bad fruit like thorns, is what Jesus says here. Instead, Jesus says, the good man, out of the good treasure that is in his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks what is in the heart, what fills the heart. Well, here's the insight we need to know. Is your life producing fruits that are less than holy? Do you have logs in your eye? How are you going to take care of these things? Right? This is the question ultimately we come to when we see Jesus telling us to take the log out of our eye. How do we do that? How are we going to address this thing? Well, the answer is simple. Your heart needs a new treasure. Because good treasure in your heart will produce good deeds in your life. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so I want to conclude by telling you about the treasure that will multiply the fruits of mercy in your life. Do you want to break free from your sin? Do you want to remove the log out of your eyes? Do you want to produce fruit that is merciful fruit? Then, my friends, I tell you, make Jesus the treasure of your heart. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Make Jesus the Savior of your soul. Fill your heart with Jesus. Don't let any other passion or any other pursuit take the place that he rightfully deserves. Don't let any other seductress woo you into something less. Because, my friends, his mercy is for you. His grace has shone down for you. He stands ready and willing to welcome the one who will turn from his or her sins and turn to Christ by faith. He stands ready to welcome you with forgiveness, with an inheritance, with life eternal, with mercy upon mercy upon mercy that fills the heart, flows out into the life. And that's what we ultimately see is that the greatest multiplier of mercy is our God himself who has, through his great kindness, through his great mercy, sent his only begotten son to be the one who would stand in our place, to be the one who would face the wrath of our judgment, to be the one who would take the whipping and the embarrassment and the humiliation, to be the one who would take the spitting upon, who would take the crown of thorns, who would take all of this wretched torture, who would take the nails in his hands 
and in his feet who would take the cross of Calvary so that you could be forgiven. He has stood the just for the unjust. He has stood in your place that you, my friends, might be reconciled to God in him. And praise God, he did not stay in the grave in which he was buried, but as a promise that you can step into this inheritance, as a promise that you can receive this eternal life, even if they lay you in a grave here on earth. Jesus broke forth from the grave and has arisen to now live forevermore as the ruling and reigning Savior. Do you want a mercy that multiplies? Look to the author of that mercy because he freely gives. All he calls for you to do is to entrust your life to him by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we didn't deserve a single thing, Christ came and gave it all for us. Father, there are a million ways which we get this command wrong when we are called to be multipliers of this mercy. But God, your word constantly challenges us. Your word constantly calls us back. And so, Father, I pray for the believers in this room, the recipients of that mercy, that you might bring about a challenge in our hearts and our souls that would evaluate the logs in our lives that we might, oh Lord, yield everything up to the Lord of all. That we might yield it all up to you to grant us liberty and peace and freedom from these trials and then father i pray for those who are here who've never received the mercy of christ lord it's not just a prayer it's not just walking an aisle it's not just these things but lord these are very practical ways to display a truth that has happened within so lord i just pray that you would help individuals to know that if they are yearning for a savior if they are yearning for forgiveness if they are yearning for eternal life. They're yearning to be restored to the God of all creation that you provide rich mercy. And may they, O oh Lord, yield their hearts to you. May they trust in Jesus to say he is sufficient. He is all that I need. And Father, if there's some way that we as a church can respond to a need in an individual's life, there's some way that I as a pastor can respond to some need in these, your people, O oh Lord. And I pray you'd give us wisdom. I pray you'd give courage to those individuals that they might speak, that we might counsel, that we might guide individuals with a merciful, loving sort of estimation, the kind of thing that we found in the Father of all mercies. And we will rejoice, O oh Lord, in you and your great mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.